listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hello, Leonid. Hello, Bob. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making the time. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Leonid Rogozin, a journalist based in Latvia, although you're from Russia originally. You've written for a number of uh, places, BBC, The Guardian, lately for Al Jazeera. In fact, you've written a piece uh, just within the last few days about uh, this Tucker Carlson interview of Vladimir Putin. I definitely want to talk about that because your take is a little different from some of the takes we saw in the West. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I have frankly been kind of distracted by the Middle East and haven't been paying as much attention to the Ukraine-Russia situation as I had been uh, before October 7th. And so I'm hoping you can kind of catch me up on the state of play there. Why don't we start out though with this uh, with this interview, this this Tucker Carlson interview of Putin? Um, first of all, how how would you say the interview was kind of processed in the West to the extent that you could tell? I mean, I assume you know. I know you're on Twitter, and people should follow you. By the way, your feed is it's just your name, right? That's right, L E O N I D. That's one word, right? R A G O Z I M. Um, and then I'm sure you check out the main outlets, the New York Times and so on. Uh, how, how, how would you say that interview was kind of processed in the West, if that's not asking for too much of a generalization? No, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's fair to say that uh, the, all the commentary was focusing on uh, the first half an hour of the interview when Putin uh, said that he is going to talk about history for, for a mere 30 seconds and then he uh, bragged on about it, uh, about uh, extinct empires and uh, um, uh, medieval princes uh, for, for a good half an hour. Um, so there was a lot of ridicule and uh, that ridicule was, was quite fair. Uh, and uh, apart from that, there were some shocking statements, including the suggestion that uh, um, Poland uh, uh, precipitated the World War II by uh, not agreeing to uh, Hitler's demands um, in 1939. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's that's uh, where. Um, uh, where the uh, all the commentary was focused really, uh, and there was a lot of uh, uh, there was a lot of mocking. Uh, people were mm -hmm. ridiculing Putin, um, but um, uh, I won't say that is unfortunate. It's it's uh, it's of Putin's own uh, making. Uh, however, the bigger part of the interview where he was actually talking about Ukraine, uh, about modern Ukraine, uh, and and about uh, recent history. Uh, that was omitted, uh, but uh, in my opinion, uh, that part of the interview is, is where Putin is trying to explain his own logic, uh, which is uh, which is often uh, missed uh, in the discourse in the West, and that logic is of uh, him being, in his opinion, uh, constantly uh, duped by the West, and his entire career from from. 
uh, from the early 2000s when he was trying to be as uh, helpful uh, as possible to um, uh, President Bush in the aftermath of 9-11. He was uh, the first leader to give a phone call to uh, Bush Jr. Uh, he offered uh, Russian uh, uh, a transportation system uh, and almost created a military base for the Americans on the Russian territory, a logistics uh, base on the Russian territory. Uh, but, um, and he, um, I think, uh, pretty sincerely hoped uh, that uh, uh, that Russia was on the path uh, towards uh, integration with uh, Euro-Atlantic structures. Um, however, what he uh, got uh, in exchange is uh, uh, is a is a type of uh, NATO's expansion which uh, essentially excluded Russia, which uh, alienated Russia, uh, and uh, and that's that's the cause of his uh, of his grievances. So he was talking at length about uh, Bucharest summit and then uh, uh, all the events that uh, followed. Uh, um, yeah, so the, the Bucharest summit, remind us, is is that the one where they uh, decided they they declared that Ukraine would eventually be a member of NATO? Well, that's that's where Ukraine and Georgia uh, received official invitation yeah. to become uh, uh, NATO countries. So uh, that was the the start of a very long uh, process. And uh, at the time, uh, France and Germany were strongly against it, uh, whereas uh, Bush was uh, was intent on uh, getting uh, Georgia and Ukraine on board. Uh, I guess the philosophy, the thinking behind it in the United States was that uh, Russia was irrelevant. It didn't matter what the Russians say and that they feel insulted about it. Uh, they will take the bitter pill and uh, and maybe eventually come on board as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the, the, result, uh, the result was uh, quite the opposite. It uh, antagonized Russia and uh, started a chain of events uh, uh, that uh, I believe uh, led up to this uh, conflict. The, and, and, that, and that was Putin's argument during the interview, I, I, in effect, that No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was the first uh, in the list of his uh, grievances that he mm -hmm. um, that he put on the table, and uh, uh, and then he proceeded uh, from there into Maidan revolution, and then into um, into the war with Ukraine. That's so. twenty fourteen. Let me interrupt you because I I didn't see the interview, but the way it was kind of depicted it seems to me on social media in the West was almost as the, the opposite of what you've just said. In other words, people focused on the first half hour where he's going on and on about Russian heritage. And I guess I, at some point he must have talked about uh, how Ukraine is naturally a part of Russia or parts of Ukraine are naturally part of Russia or, or whatever. I mean, first of all, did he, he did get into that at some, at some point? Um, well, uh, yes, he did. Uh, he uh, channeled the uh, Russian nationalist myth. Uh, and um, uh, what he was basically saying is that uh, uh, the Russians and Ukrainians come from the same root. Uh, 
right. uh, and uh, that they have uh, common history. And then he uh, dwelt uh, for a long time on the uh, on the composition of Ukraine, of uh, on on how Ukraine came uh, to to be in in the current borders, which uh, which largely happened uh, in the Soviet times. Uh, and um, from not just from his, but from the general uh, Russian nationalist point of view, uh, when they start looking at uh, different parts of Ukraine, uh, they, they they will say that uh, only the um, historical core of Ukraine around Kiev is 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 the actual um, core Ukraine that uh, derives from the Kievan Rus, uh, whereas uh, all the um, southeast there was. Uh, uh, colonized by Russians and Ukrainians together uh, during the Russian mm-hmm. imperial times when uh, when uh, the Russian Empire was expanding. Uh, and then uh, Ukraine uh, expanded uh, even further in the in the Soviet times and especially after the Second World War uh, when um, when the Soviet Union annexed uh, what is now Western Ukraine, which was mm-hmm. uh, uh, partly Poland, partly Hungary and partly Romania. So I guess, um, you, you know, the, 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 the spin in the West was, okay, so this just confirms our claim that the reason he invaded is because he has imperial aspirations. Who knows where he'll stop? Uh, you know, Poland may be next. Um, and, and so far as I can tell, people pretty much at least mainstream kind of commentators pretty much entirely ignored the the part you talked about earlier about how NATO, you know, if you want to ask, it, it sounds like Putin was saying, if you want to know why we feel entitled to keep our troops in Southeast and Eastern Ukraine, it's because it's, it's as, as you know, in, in some sense, a natural part of Russia. But it sounds like in explaining why he actually invaded in the first place, he was stressing these national security issues, uh, beginning with NATO and then saying that the West mishandled the 2014 Maidan revolution and so on. And that part I did not hear in the kind of Western spin on this. I mean, was that your impression that there wasn't a lot of attention paid to what he said about NATO expansion and, and how? The West has repeatedly, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, humiliated Russia or or not delivered on its promises or whatever. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's the question of uh, whether you uh, on how you interpret uh, what, Putin, what Putin says, and uh, if your uh, if your starting point is that he always lies. Uh, then, uh, then of course you can uh, you, you may consider everything he says as as a lie as as a way of uh, uh, framing his uh, actions, which were monstrous, in fact, um, uh, as uh, framing them um, in in retrospect. Uh, but uh, that's that's not necessarily what was uh, what was happening. Yeah. Um, I think the the main message uh, Putin was trying to convey. Uh, and uh, he stressed that in um, uh, when, when when he was describing each of these uh, crucial uh, turning points uh, in in history, uh, whether uh, Bucharest summit or uh, Maidan revolution or Istanbul talks at the start of the fallout invasion, uh, mm-hmm. his message always was that um, 
Ukraine and the West always had a choice of uh, avoiding this conflict at each of this point. Uh, at each of these points, as an example, for um, uh, when when he was talking about uh, um, the occupation of Crimea and the end of Maidan revolution, uh, he uh, dwelt for a long time on uh, the uh, agreement that was achieved uh, uh, between the government of Viktor Yanukovych and the Maidan opposition, and that agreement was uh, mediated by uh, Germany, France, uh, and Poland. Um, uh, he, what what he said is that. Uh, had had the opposition uh, not ignored the um, the agreement, had they not um, uh, started to take over government buildings and forced uh, Yanukovych to flee, uh, Russia wouldn't have uh, invaded uh, Crimea. That's that's his position, and uh, again he was uh, he conveyed this feeling of being duped by the West. He said that uh, uh, once once the opposition took over the government buildings, once uh, Yanukovych fled, uh, the Western mediators uh, threw uh, the agreement into into the furnace, and that uh, from his uh, perspective. Um, from his current perspective, uh, mm -hmm. prompted him to to invade uh, Crimea. Whether that's true or not, that's a matter of argument, because uh, it was clear that the Russians were preparing something in Crimea even before that happened. They were they were active in Crimea, uh, but it's also true that um, uh, they they were changing their stance on Crimea even when it comes to the. Uh, referendum, um, the so-called referendum they held in the March of 2014. Uh, at first, uh, the, the question in the referendum was about uh, Crimea's autonomy, and only later, as uh, the events unfolded, did they change it to uh, the uh, to, to Crimea becoming a part of Russia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, so this theme in your Al Jazeera piece about how a couple of things. I mean, he sees himself as being repeatedly reactive to the West. If you look at the chain of events that led to the invasion, you say he sees himself as repeatedly reacting to things, in particular, his being misled or duped or the Russia or the, the West not delivering on promises. You know, I, I don't know if you have you seen this interview he did at some point with the director Oliver Stone. Um there, I, I know what you're talking about, but there, no, I, I didn't watch There's this, this moment. There's this moment, at, like at the end, Oliver Stone gives him some like DVD or CD or something as like, I guess, kind of a gift. It, I don't, I don't even know what's in it. But Putin says thank you. And the interview is over. Putin says thank you, and he walks out of the room, closes the door, and then he comes right back in. And he opens the case and see, they had forgotten to put the DVD in the case. So they'd given him an empty case. And what Putin says is typical Western gift. You know, and, and, and that is obvious. That is his actual view, right? Like the West, you know, and I mean, honestly, if you, if you look at the early part of, of you know, the after certainly after 9-11, um, he does feel he went out of his way. He was the first one to call Bush. Uh, but Bush did all of these things that he didn't want Bush to do, such as get out of the ABM treaty and so on. I mean, that that is definitely his narrative. Um, is your sense that he believes it? I mean, he, he feels genuinely kind of consistently betrayed or? 
No, I think, yes, uh, I think he quite sincerely believed that uh, uh, he was being treated uh, by the West in a, in a colonial way uh, as a, uh, as a non, non-equal. And, uh, and it, it showed uh, at the time in, in various ways. Uh, my, my favorite example is this uh, cover in the Atlantic magazine, uh, which had brushes um, uh, finished, you know, across the cover. Uh, and um, that, that cover was published, uh, that magazine was published in 2001. Uh, mm. That's the, the, second, the second year of Putin's rule. Uh, so, I mean, now we can, uh, we can be sure how, how wrong it was. Yeah. Uh, Back um, at the time, so but that that was the sentiment that he was uh, that he was facing, and uh, he 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 felt that uh, the, the the way the uh, Western establishment is talking to him, and particularly the way the way the Americans were talking to him, is like uh, sort of will pay the lip service to the Russia's to Russia's greatness, uh, to uh, to Russia's own perceived greatness, and uh, will will do all the respectful stuff, uh, but uh, in in reality, will just ignore anything Russia says, uh, particularly on its own security and own security in Europe. Okay, so uh, I mean, maybe I, I may want to get back to this issue of how kind of how he sees the past and what the past, in fact, is. But the other big takeaway. Uh, in fact, this is the headline of your piece in Al Jazeera is Putin is ready for talks on Ukraine, but on his own terms. Uh, his interview with Tucker Carlson reveals how he envisions negotiations and peace. Uh, so I want to talk about that. Um, the, uh, I also, but, but first let me editorialize a little bit about the Western media. Um, so New York Times, it, it it has that in its kind of headline. Putin calls on U.S. to negotiate on Ukraine in Tucker Carlson interview. But then when you read the piece, it's just interesting the way they lead into it. Now, this is written by this guy, Anton Trojanovsky. You're familiar with him, right? Yeah, absolutely. Have, yeah. I mean, He's first a of all, yeah, okay. Uh, I, I actually don't share that view. But let me just, it seems to me he has, uh, let me just uh, read his piece. President Vladimir Putin of Russia has worked for decades to win allies in the West, using his spy agencies to interfere in elections and deploying diplomats to build links with Kremlin-friendly politicians. On Thursday, the world witnessed a new verbose chapter in those efforts. Mr. Putin's two-hour interview, taped in a gilded hall at the Kremlin with one of America's most prominent and most divisive, blah, 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 the next, uh, you know, he goes on and it's like, okay, you can lead with election interference if you want. I mean, I don't think that's really the heart of the story. And, And the New York Times had a separate piece that was kind of about the atmospherics of the interview and so on. So they had their chance to kind of editorialize it. I mean, they had a separate repertorial piece. This guy's job was to to deliver the news. And, and as the headline suggests, he eventually gets to it. But I have found his coverage personally consistently kind of uh, like this. And, and I could go on, but uh, I, I, uh, I, I respect your view that he's a good journalist. I'm sure in some respects he is. Um, 
but so anyway, you got to the, I, I don't know, did you want to say something about what I just said or? Yeah, yeah uh, I might just say that, um, look, uh, uh, why the, the, the reason uh, uh, Putin uh, uh, gave this interview to Taki Carlson uh, and he, he, he wouldn't uh, do any interviews with Western journalists uh, after the, the start of um, the full-out invasion. The, the only reason was uh, that uh, the, um, uh, the aid to Ukraine is, uh, is a major issue in the Congress. Uh, the um, uh, Republicans uh, um, aligned with uh, Donald Trump are trying to prevent Biden's administration right. to, uh, to send this crucial aid uh, to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, the, the the whole thing was very very obviously to derail uh, aid to Ukraine and to, of course to to embarrass uh, uh, Biden's administration. That's uh, I mean you you can't take those words out of the song. It's it's true. And uh, New York Times uh, writing for the American audience, of course, it is quite American centric. So it's all about America. Yeah. It's all about American politics. Uh, and uh, from from the point of view of American domestic politics, that's that's what this interview was about. Uh, but uh, yes, I mean I'm I'm here in Eastern Europe, and uh, and uh, it's it's a very different uh, perspective, uh, and um, uh, and there's there's a lot more to to talk about this interview than uh, than than uh, its implication on uh, on Biden's uh, um, uh, prospects to right. get reelected. No, I think that's all true. Uh... Uh, but as I said, the Times had other coverage, kind of on the on the of that. Anyway, uh, my 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 issues with this particular journalist go way back, and I could elaborate, but I won't. Let's um, talk about this part of it. Like, what's your takeaway on? I mean, first of all, we should maybe set the context by saying, in case there's anybody who, like me, has been a little distracted by the Middle East, that over the last three months, you know, things definitely have not. Uh, gotten better for Ukraine on the battlefield. As we speak, they seem Ukraine seems to be in the process of losing. What is it? Advitka. I don't know how you pronounce it. Advitka. It's an it's a pretty important town, I guess. Avdiivka. It's probably the most important town to change hands. Uh, I don't know. Maybe since Bakhmut, right? I mean, it, it, it's something they've been fighting over a long time. And, and as we speak, I don't think. Ukraine is quite withdrawn, but it looks as if they're going to have to, right? I don't know. They haven't uh, withdrawn yet, uh, but uh, but yes, it's it's um, it's a likelihood. And uh, one of the uh, most respectful um, Ukrainian uh, war monitoring services, they is called the Deep State. Incidentally, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it essentially called on the Ukrainian command to, uh, to withdraw from, from Avdiivka. And also uh -huh. one of the uh, Ukrainian military spokesmen uh, said today that in Avdiivka, the priority for Ukraine is uh, saving soldiers' lives and not, uh, as he said, uh, fighting uh, for the heaps of stones and uh, burnt uh, iron. Uh, so that that might suggest that they are thinking of um, withdrawing there. At the same time, they they did send in uh, reserves, uh, the the third assault brigade. So so it's not quite clear whether they they're going to keep on fighting for for some time. Uh, but yeah, it was it was the main battle um, since uh, since Bakhmut, uh, since another battle last year, 
and uh, it's uh, it's looking very likely that within uh, days or maybe weeks uh, the Russians will prevail uh, in, uh, on this battlefield. And of course, there are doubts as to whether they're going to get another round of American support. I'm kind of guessing they will right now, and maybe by the time we post this, things uh, will have become clearer. But at the same time, it's kind of clear that uh, Ukraine can't necessarily count on Western help forever. And of course, they're dependent on the West for weapons and ammo in a way that Russia is not as dependent on anyone. And then there's the whole manpower issue. You know, Ukraine uh, seems to be, you know, maybe not quite running out of soldiers, but they're a lot closer than Russia is. So in general, and of course, there was the failure of the summer offensive. Uh, and so in general, the the tide, se- the Russia, the, the momentum seems to be with Russia as as we speak, right? That's your sense. And, and presumably that is the sense that Putin carried into this interview, right? No, no, absolutely. Uh, I think he's uh, feeling pretty confident that he is uh, uh, having an upper hand uh, in Ukraine. Um, there is there is a consensus across the board that Ukraine is not going to uh, wage any counteroffensive uh, during uh, 2024, uh, that at best it can uh, hold off uh, the, uh, the the Russian advance and not not lose um, a lot of territory. And uh, and there is uh, hope uh, with the more hawkish community uh, reflected maybe in the, in the latest uh, British report by the, the main um, uh, military think tank in, in Britain uh, that uh, by 2025, 2026, uh, uh, Ukraine uh, will somehow manage to grow its uh, strength, uh, to grow its uh, military uh, production and uh, strengthen its army, uh, whereas uh, uh, Russia will be worn off and its economy will start uh, collapsing. So so that's, that's the hope, which um, I'm sure Putin is not sharing. And I don't think uh, uh, most, most of Russian economists are, uh, are sharing at the moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, there is there is um, uh, there is a also a consensus among the hawks uh, that Ukraine should keep fighting, and uh, it derives from the fact that uh, uh, if uh, Ukraine uh, agrees to a, uh, to some kind of truce or frozen conflict now, uh, it uh, it will be. Um, uh, essentially a defeat for Ukraine and the West. And that's because uh, the um, the benchmark uh, is still Minsk agreement. Uh, Minsk agreement, which uh, Ukraine essentially dismissed uh, on the eve of, uh, uh, of, of the full-out invasion. Uh, and um, uh, one of the main uh, spokesmen for the Ukrainian government, uh, Alexei Ristovich, uh, back at the time in March 2022, uh, uh, he, he uh, put it uh, quite clearly uh, that uh, anything worse than Minsk uh, will be Ukraine's defeat. And I think he expressed the point of view of, of the entire Ukrainian government. Uh, so what's, what, what Ukraine is going to get now is definitely going to be uh, worse than Minsk. Uh, yeah. Minsk Minsk presumed that uh, the uh, 
uh, territory that was occupied by Russia back in 2014-2015 uh, wouldn't even be annexed by Russia. It would remain in Ukraine as a kind of a Trojan horse that would prevent uh, Ukraine from ever entering NATO, that would uh, leave, uh, uh, leave Russia with their leverage in Ukraine. Uh, but um, on the other hand, these this areas would remain inside, uh, inside Ukraine. So now we are talking about uh, four let me, regions. Let me just make sure I understand that part. So the Minsk Accords, this is after 2014, after the Maidan thing, right? And uh, the Minsk Accords would have kept all of the Donbass in Ukrainian hands, but I guess not Crimea, right? Or, oh, oh no. well, no, they wouldn't have. Well, you tell me. I mean, because this was after Russia had occupied Crimea, right? No, no, absolutely. Uh, okay. uh, Russia occupied Crimea and Russia uh, formally annexed Crimea. Russia right. formally declared Crimea uh, its territory. Uh, so Crimea was a, was not a subject of negotiations in Minsk, which were yeah. um, mediated by France and, and Germany. Uh, but uh, the, um, uh, the idea behind Minsk is that uh, uh, Donbass, the areas of Donbass, and uh, th these were uh, parts of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, not even uh, the, those regions entirely, that uh, this, this, uh, now this territories uh, uh, will become an autonomy within Ukraine uh, and that uh, elections would be held and so that Russian troops would eventually withdraw from, from those areas. So that's the, the template for this uh, is, I guess, uh, Transnistria in uh, Moldova. Which is which is a part of Moldova that is uh, autonomous, uh, uh, but um, uh, still considered by everybody, including and, Russia, as a part of and Moldova. Let me, and tell me if I'm right in recalling something you you said last time we talked, which was a few months ago. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, so so Minsk would, as you say, would have kept uh, Donetsk and Luhansk within Ukraine, giving given it. A degree of autonomy, I think an important part is it would have given them an effective kind of veto over major foreign policy changes, which which would have meant, in effect, the Ukraine would not have entered NATO. But they would have been part of Ukraine. Uh, the Russian, they would have, the separatist held parts would have come under a full Ukrainian control. Um, and I think you explained to me last time, uh, in the context for my question that you were answering then, was the fact that uh, in December of 2022, or maybe November, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S., uh, Mark Milley, had said, look, uh, this was after a couple of big triumphs on the battleground uh, by Ukraine. And Milley said, look, things probably aren't going to get much better this would be a good time to cut a deal. I wrote a piece a few weeks later in the Washington Post saying, you know, Biden should use his uh, leverage. He should basically play the bad cop to take the political pressure off Zelensky. He, you know, he should let Zelensky blame him for the fact that Zelensky is going to go to peace talks with Russia and basically do what Mark Milley said. Now, uh, of course, at that point, I mean, I mean, in retrospect, it seems like they would have been better off because, uh, you know, as I said, momentum seems to be shifting. A ton of Ukrainians have died since then. Uh, they probably would have been better off uh, doing the deal then. But that would have left Russia in control of parts of actual Ukraine 
beyond Crimea. And you explained to me when I ask you, like, why doesn't Zelensky start preparing public opinion for the inevitability of some deal like this by, you know, start saying, well, we may have to settle for less than we'd like and so on. You explained to me, like, because then he will be blamed for not following through on the Minsk Accords. Is, is that right? Like, uh, like maybe I'm misremembering, but but as I recall, you were saying th this will be a worse deal than Zelensky probably could have had at some point uh, before the invasion, if, if I'm recalling correctly, to say nothing of, of uh, the deal that, according to Putin and some other people, was offered right after the invasion. Uh, which would have led to Russian withdrawal from everything but Crimea. Um, tell me if I'm misremembering. What 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 was it you explained to me about Ukrainian politics? No, no, that's that's very much. Uh, uh, and and uh, thank you, thank you for bringing it up. Thank, uh, I mean, uh, Milly's uh, comments, because yes, uh, there was this moment, and uh, Milly was very right that uh, uh, it it was the best moment for Ukraine to negotiate a, a better peace with Russia. And, and yes, you're also right um, in saying that uh, that that peace would would have been worse than what uh, what Ukraine uh, had uh, before uh, Russia's uh, full-out invasion. Uh, so, and that that of course was why uh, Zelensky eventually decided not to uh, go for it. And I guess uh, that was also the consensus uh, in Biden's administration, notwithstanding uh, Milley's um, uh, private opinion on, on okay. that. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, they, they started preparing for the counteroffensive in uh, 2023, and they, they hoped that they will uh, achieve a lot. Uh, they, they will have um, a much uh, a better situation by the end of this uh, counteroffensive uh, if not uh, pushing the Russians uh, all the way to the 1991 borders, uh, says so Zelensky hope maybe maybe pushing them uh, back. Uh, so it uh, uh, at least it is as as uh, as bad as it was at the at the start of the uh, invasion, um, as 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 bad as. Uh, uh, as as when uh, Ukraine had the, the Minsk option, uh, so uh, we now know that it uh, uh, didn't happen. Uh, that Ukraine is now worse off than it than it was at the time, uh, and um, and Russia is is now advancing. And uh, uh, the more time goes, as it stands now, uh, the more territory Russia will occupy. And uh, and claim as uh, as as Russian essentially. Uh, so uh, the uh, Putin's message in the interview, and it was uh, followed up by uh, several of his lieutenants, um, uh, uh, so to say, uh, later by his press secretary and uh, by the um, by one of the uh, foreign ministry officials. Uh, it basically says that. Uh, uh, we are ready to uh, get back to the framework of Istanbul talks, the talks that um, happened uh, uh, in the weeks after the start of the full-out invasion. Um, but uh, all the territory that we have occupied so far uh, is going to uh, stay uh, in Russia. So well, that's, whereas, that's the... whereas at Istanbul, am I right in thinking the idea was that 
Russia would actually have withdrawn from everything but Crimea in exchange for guarantees that Ukraine would not join NATO and so on. That, that was that was the deal on the table a few weeks into the invasion. Well, they, um, as I understand it, the deal on the table, uh, according to uh, Ukrainian and Western sources, uh, was that Russia would uh, withdraw to the uh, uh, line of contact prior to the full-out okay. invasion. Okay. So the, the Russian troops would stay in the parts of Donetsk and Lugansk region that, uh, that okay. were occupied in 2014-2015. But that would have been a, a major... Uh, win uh, for Ukraine because uh, uh, back at the time uh, Russian troops were uh, near Kiev. Uh, they, they were mm -hmm. in the suburbs of Kiev and Russia occupied uh, swathes of uh, northern Ukraine and it was uh, besieging uh, Mariupol in the southern Ukraine and it was uh, building building mm -hmm. the uh, land uh, corridor to Crimea. So, so, those, so that uh, would have left Russia with way less territory than they have now. And, and, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I gather that Putin in, in his interview with Carlson is emphasizing they're going to hang on to if there's a peace. And, and he's apparently saying he's ready to talk peace, but they're going to hang on to all the territory they've got. Is that what he's saying? No, no, absolutely. Uh, I guess to sort of to conceptualize uh, Putin's uh, uh, attitude to peace. And uh, and you might uh, uh, you might uh, help me if there is a uh, an English equivalent to um, to to Russian uh, expression pertaining to uh, to turf wars between mafias. Uh, so the the idea is uh, there, there is a, there is a Russian expression uh, which uh, which is uh, Literally, it uh, it means uh, to put someone on a counter. Uh, Put someone uh, on a what? On a on a on a counter. Like counter. give them like their time is running out. Or? Well, the, the the idea is that uh, the uh, the punishment uh, grows exponentially ah. uh, with it with each uh, time unit of intransigence. Okay. Uh, so uh, you can uh, you can picture a racketeer. Uh, a racketeer in ban, uh, gang which uh, attacks a business and says that uh, uh, today you pay me uh, $100, but tomorrow you'll pay 200 and right. uh, day after tomorrow you'll pay 1,000. Uh, so that's that's what um, Putin is doing with Ukraine. And um, thinking of Putin's uh, years in uh, uh, in the 1990s in Petersburg when he was dealing with mafias and uh, from... Uh, many people's point of view was part of this mafia. Uh, that's that's very much uh, part of the culture, and uh, this this expression is uh, one of the key expressions uh, that is that remains as the legacy of those days in in the uh, contemporary Russian language. So, by that, does he mean that if you don't seize this opportunity for peace, we're going to take more territory, or or is he saying if you don't seize this opportunity, we're going to demand more? in other realms or what? Do you know what he means by this exactly? Yeah, that's that's why he was uh, he wanted to all this uh, talk about history, about recent history. Uh, his, uh, what he's basically saying is that uh, we were not planning to seize Crimea, uh, but what happened at the end of Maidan, the, uh, those uh, agreements being uh, thrown into the furnace, as he said, uh, that uh, kind of prompted us to uh, to invade Crimea, and uh, then uh, 
then there were Minsk agreements and uh, uh, the um, uh, the lack of desire by Ukraine and its Western partners, which is now in the obvious. Everybody said that they were not going to comply with Minsk agreements. Um, the lack of that desire uh, prompted him to prepare and start uh, uh, the full-out invasion. Uh, can I, can and, I just clarify? Are you saying it is now clear? Because there's dispute over whose fault it is that the Minsk agreements failed. Are you saying it is now clear that Ukraine, more than Russia, failed to deliver on the Minsk Accords, failed to stick with the commitments? But there is there is still a, an argument, and uh -huh. the, the hawkish community will, of course, say that uh, it was Russia that was not going to implement uh, Minsk agreements. Uh, but at the same time, uh, um, several major politicians, leaders, in fact, including Zelensky himself, uh, basically said that they were never going to uh, implement Minsk agreements. Okay. Those, those were Zelensky himself in a Spiegel interview. Uh, it was uh, President Poroshenko, the uh, predecessor of Zelensky. It was Angela Merkel, and it was um, the, the, the former president of France. Okay. Uh, everybody in different forms uh, suggested that Minsk was uh, never, because it was imposed in Ukraine, that's also true. It was imposed on Ukraine by force. Uh, so, so all the parties who, uh, which which uh, participated in uh, uh, in um, and the signing of these agreements, they they believed, apart from Russia, of course, okay. uh, they believed that uh, uh, things will change and uh, hopefully Russia will uh, somehow soften its stance on these okay. agreements. So sorry, uh, they, I they, they, the Americans. You. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the Americans said uh, when I was uh, talking to American experts. Uh, in uh, in the um, run up to the full out invasion, uh, uh, they they spoke a lot about uh, what they called the, the the better Minsk, getting the better Minsk, and better Minsk is basically uh, improving the conditions for Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe maybe Ukraine getting more control uh, over this territory, so maybe uh, this territory is not having a, a veto on Ukraine's NATO membership. I'm not quite sure what they meant by this, okay. uh, but that uh, seemed to be the policy of uh, Jake Sullivan uh, and, and Biden's administration in the run-up uh, to, to the to the full-out invasion. Okay, so sorry, I interrupted you when I asked for background on Minsk. Now, where were you? Do you remember where you were headed? Uh, uh, no, I don't at the moment. But <laughs> sorry, uh, but uh, no, I think I think we, we've, uh, we've so, pretty much covered it. Um, okay, so Putin is ready to talk, but he's saying, which I, I kind of thought he was for a long time now. But I've also thought that he would insist on keeping the territory he's got. Um, you know, it, it would be uh, pretty hard to go back to the Russian people and say, "Sorry about the hundred thousand dead soldiers. Uh, we didn't get anything at all for it in terms of territory." Right? I mean. Uh, but, um, and I mean, I'm sure he, for a lot of reasons, he, I mean, there are other reasons he's actually lost a lot. Like Finland is now part of NATO. Sweden's going to be part of NATO. He, he's lost a lot as a result of the invasion. And, and I'm sure he wants to have as much as possible to show for it. But, um, so I guess it's now the question is, uh, whether the West and Ukraine want to negotiate, and your sense is that no, they don't, I guess, right? I mean, certainly the politics in Ukraine would make it very hard for Zelensky to accept any kind of such deal, you think? 
Yeah, I, um, uh, again, we, we should uh, sort of dwell a bit on, on the Russian perspective, uh, at least on, on Putin's perspective and on his supporters' perspective. Um, I don't think they see it uh, as a defeat. I don't think they uh, feel that they uh, lost something by uh, Finland or Sweden uh, joining mm. NATO. Uh, I think they regarded these countries uh, as... Uh, de facto members of NATO. And uh, okay. if you if you look at uh, NATO's uh, exercises, like I covered uh, for Bloomberg, uh, they are the largest um, NATO's exercise since the, um, since the Cold War in, in Norway in 2018. And uh, Finland was very much a part of that exercise. And it, it participated in it uh, just like uh, any other um, NATO country. And the Swedes were there uh, as well. Uh, so I, I don't think it changes much uh, for for Russia. What uh, th their view is that uh, this conflict was uh, inevitable, and it was uh, made inevitable by uh, 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 by. Um, the West, by the American-led West, uh, expanding its uh, structures uh, into the former uh, Soviet Union. Uh, the other thing is that they deem themselves to be underdogs in this conflict. Uh, they don't see it as, you know, the giant Russia versus small, smaller Ukraine or uh, small Baltic countries. No, they see uh, the um, uh, the adversary as a much uh, larger military machine and economic machine. And they mm -hmm. see themselves as, as underdogs in this conflict. So they, they don't get really too upset about uh, losing something like uh, Finnish uh, neutrality. So Putin, does, does he have a lot of domestic political support? You know, I, uh, I saw a thing on Twitter recently where these guys, you know, the Russians with attitude Twitter feed, uh, they, they were saying something like they were commenting on the fact that the rest of Russia has kind of caught up with them uh, in terms of uh, just supporting the war or, or, or something. I, I think I took that to be their me meaning. Is your sense that Putin has plenty of public support right now? Uh, the, um, uh, the, the public support in Russia is, uh, uh, is um, complete complicated thinking the way that uh, uh, the uh, the Russian population is essentially uh, are essentially hostages uh, uh -huh. to to um, uh, to the geopolitical conflict and to and to Putin's uh, own uh, policies uh, war is not their choice uh, polls uh, show consistent support for Putin's uh, Putin's policy uh, but um, uh, when people asked uh, indirect uh, questions, um, they they showed that this uh, that this support is, is very uh, lukewarm and uh, uh, and uh, tentative. Now there, there there were polls in which uh, people were asked uh, first question like whether they support uh, the special military operation as they call it. And uh, 70 or something percent would say, yes, mm -hmm. yes, we support. Uh, and, uh, and then the second question would be, uh, do you, if, if Putin uh, withdraws troops from uh, Donbass and uh, says, um, 
that it's it's okay, Russia is out of this war and will be on friendly terms with Ukraine thereafter. Would you support that? And then again, a majority of Russians would say, yes, yes, we support that as well. Uh, so uh, people, uh, I guess majority of people in Russia, uh, they, uh, they feel extremely uncomfortable in this situation. Uh, millions and millions of people have close relatives in Ukraine or have some personal history in Ukraine. Uh, they, uh, they're not enjoying this, this situation. Uh, at the same time, uh, they uh, find themselves uh, in a much more comfortable situation than people in Ukraine. They don't want uh, uh, a war of any kind to come to their porch in the way it came um, to to their uh, to the porch of their friends and uh, relatives in Ukraine, uh, and that's that's how Putin is uh, is using it. So the um, uh, the uh, support of the mil- of uh, of what they call military operation in Ukraine uh, by the Russian it. Um, dwells primarily on the fear of war uh, coming to Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Putin has this narrative of uh, uh, fighting uh, fighting a war on, on the enemy's uh, soil. That's an ancient narrative. That's, that's what uh, Stalin was trying to do when he uh, uh, when he signed, uh, when Ribbentrop and Molotov signed the, the agreement and they, mm-hmm. he divided Poland with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Germany, the, the idea was that, uh, if, if the war begins, uh, they, they will fight it, uh, not on the Soviet territory at the, at the beginning. Uh, so, uh, so that's, that's, that's the idea. Uh, people don't want uh, anything like Ukraine to to happen to them, and mm-hmm. that's that's where public support derives okay. from. So, in, in a couple of minutes, we're going to head into the overtime section of this uh, conversation, uh, which is available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero Newsletter. Before we do, I want to ask you one other question. It's about Zelensky uh, firing the commanding general, the guy in charge of the whole war, whose name was what something like Zelensky. And apparently, he was pretty popular uh, with the with the public, and replacing him with somebody else. What do you think is going on there? Well, Zaluzhny was uh, becoming a political figure, and uh, although he was not making uh, uh, major political statements himself, but uh, he he allowed himself to uh, publish a couple of articles in the Western media. Uh, which uh, contradicted uh, Zelensky's stance uh, on the on the future of this war and also on mobilization on how many people the the army needs. Uh, he was uh, more Zelensky. pessimistic than Zelensky about the war in these things. Well, he he basically wanted uh, he he wanted half a million people to to be mobilized, which is a uh, too much to ask really from the Ukrainian politicians because the uh, the situation mm-hmm. with the mobilization is already quite uh, tense in Ukraine uh, and uh, it's it's really unpredictable mm-hmm. if if they, they if they really go for uh, mobilizing half a million people so uh, Zaluzhny uh, drew a lot of support from uh, anti-Zelensky opposition which uh, uh, which is uh, rising its uh, head uh, because uh, the official Zelensky's official term is running out in May, uh, and uh, beyond May, 
uh, he's a, a wartime uh, president. His uh, legitimacy is more question. Although but, he's but, legally, but, constitutionally, he's still the leader, but uh, his legitimacy but will be, be questioned. A, but the election probably won't happen, right? Because they're under martial law. But you're saying that nonetheless, there may be questions about his legitimacy, even though he'll stay in power, having kind of postponed the election. Um, and uh, Zelushny was thought of as a possible political rival, I gather, in the long run for Zelensky, right? And. No, no absolutely. Uh, as, as many, uh, almost. You know, every political scientist in Ukraine would uh, tell you uh, domestic politics uh, returned to Ukraine at some point uh, recently. And uh, Zelushin emerged as the uh, political figure uh, that is uh, supported uh, by, by most of the anti-Zelensky opposition, which always existed, but it was uh, silenced by, by the war. Essentially. And what, what is the big disagreement? In other words, uh what body, uh, what opinion does the Zeluzhny represent about how things should be conducted? You said he wants a more ambitious mobilization. Does that mean in general he's saying Zelensky isn't uh, doing enough to actually win the war? Or is, or like, is it possible to say which of the two would be uh, more likely to actually do a peace deal with uh, Putin or or what? What are the what is the big difference? Well, look, it's uh, uh, this big difference is 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 really hard to detect. Uh, there there is there is this difference on on mobilization, uh, indeed. Uh, but uh, when it comes to uh, agreements with Russia, it's it's not quite it's not quite clear where where the difference is. Mm -hmm. There. Uh, the real thing is uh, that uh, there is struggle for power, and there there are forces which are rising their head, uh, uh, which uh, which want uh, uh, Zelensky diminished, weakened, and uh, possibly out. Right. Okay. All right. So uh, as I said, uh, this is uh, signals the end of the public part of the podcast. Thanks to everybody who's stayed with us for this long. Now we're going to continue the conversation. Uh, if you want to listen to it or just want to support conversations like this, um, you can become a paid subscriber to the Non-Zero newsletter by Googling uh, Non-Zero and Substack or clicking the link at the uh, in the show notes of the podcast app. And then you can get a kind of special podcast feed that just always has the full version of all the conversations. Um, I before we go into overtime, Leonid, I want to give you a chance to uh well well tell people where uh we've mentioned your Twitter feed, which I definitely recommend. Um uh tell people anything else about where they can find your stuff and and if there's anything you wanna say uh by way of punctuation for anything you've said so far in the conversation, feel free. Yeah, but I, I mostly write for uh, my opinion pieces for Al Jazeera, uh, and uh, uh, also write for the Norwegian newspaper Morgan Blooded. If you, if uh, and if you read in Norwegian, I'll, I'll check that out next time I'm in Norway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, and I I, I published a, a book uh, in Norway about uh, uh, the the war about Russian history and the war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. It's uh, it's called European Tragedy, and it's uh, so far it's 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 only been published in in Norwegian language. So, do you speak Norwegian and Latvian? 
no, I don't. Uh, I speak a bit of Latvian. I, I don't speak Norwegian. I, I wouldn't pretend to. I, I wrote a, a, a book in a language I, I don't speak. But I had a Norwegian uh, co-author, Stan Inge Jorgensen. I see. Okay. All right. So thanks, everybody, who's uh, stayed with us uh, so far. Uh, and now we head into overtime.